The orphanage was the most devastating experience of my life. It's difficult to speak about even today. I grew up watching her depressed, anxious, and often dissociated from reality. When my mother burned me with her cigarette, I learned not to complain. I grew up watching her be a doormat. I learned that that's what being a woman looked like. The moment I saw her covered in blood, I vowed I'd never be like her. Despite all my mom had been shown, she took a different path. I'm your host, Sherry Simmons. And I'm Jan Simmons, and we're mother and daughter and co-authors of Which Way, a memoir and psychological manual that addresses mental illness, trauma, generational baggage, and ultimately power. I'm a therapist, consultant, professor, and the executive director at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center in Colorado. Together, Mom and I speak to the warriors in our society who have made similar choices to turn their turmoil into triumph and the experts who plant seeds of hope. Hello, listeners. I'm Sherry Simmons. And I'm Jan Simmons. Thank you for joining us today. You know, I had an interesting conversation this week with um, one of my friends in law enforcement, and I asked him the question, are you seeing the suicide rate go down? Um, because we we know there was a spike in in suicides across the nation um, at the start of the the pandemic, and so I thought his answer would be yes. Now there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're seeing a decrease. But that is not at all what he said. Um, he said that it the the rate is either remaining steady in some states or rising, and that baffled me and concerned me. So I wanted to have our next guest on, um, and and Paula, I may screw up your last name, Paula Fontanelle. Fontanelli. Fontanelli. Oh, that's yeah. Beautiful. Everybody screws up my last name. Don't don't feel bad. <laughs> Paula Fontanelli. I'm so glad that you joined us um, on our podcast today. You wrote a book called Understanding Suicide: Living with Loss: Paths to Prevention. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what we're seeing in our world right now. Tell us a little bit about your story, because you lost your father to suicide back in 2005. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. First first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor because this has become, you know, fighting the stigma surrounding suicide has become a mission in my life after my dad died. And what happened to him, I think it's it's a very common story when I've been talking to families who lost loved ones to suicide for, I don't know, 13 years now. And it, so many of the stories are very similar to what happened to my father because we have all these myths and all these misconceptions about suicide, and I'm hopeful that we're going to touch on some of them today. Um, He died in 2005. Prior to my dad's suicide, I never, I had never been touched by suicide. I didn't, I didn't know anyone, but of course there's so much stigma because maybe someone did die that I knew and it was just covered up because that's what happens. You know, people are so afraid of talking about suicide that, but I, I never, I never even heard about someone who had taken their lives. So my dad was really the first one. 
And now, of course, looking back, I see that he gave all the signs that he was going to do it. But back then, you know, that's what happens. You look at them and you just go day by day. You try to solve one problem here, one problem there. And for example, a few months before he died, he called me and we had lunch and he was asking me for my documents. So back then I didn't think anything of it because he was having a lot of financial difficulties at the time and I was helping him out with that. So I just thought it made sense if we have a joint account. He said, I need to open a joint account with you. I said, okay, makes sense. It will make things easier for me, you know, paying. I was taking care of his finances. It's okay, that's a good idea. But now looking back, that was part of his planning because he wanted to make sure that someone could, you know, do whatever he wanted me to do with the money afterwards. So you, you look back and you see the signs, but at the time I knew that he, for example, I had talked to him, I knew that he wasn't doing okay. He was having, as I said, financial difficulties. He had uh, divorced my mom after 30 something years of marriage, a few years before that, there was three, four years maybe. He had a new relationship, which came with a lot of responsibility because the person had two kids. Yeah. And my father was a family man and he felt responsible for those kids. So that was a lot of pressure. Um, so there was a lot of pressure on him and he had opened a new business and it didn't work out. All his savings, he used all his savings on that. And he just looked to the, his future and said, do I want to keep living like this? But at the time, he gave all these signs. We didn't see any, any at all. The only one that I actually saw back then was that I thought he had depression. I've always been into psychology. I've always loved studying the brain and psychology and everything. And, and I told him that you need to see a psychiatrist because I think you, you, have the, you, you, say, well, you, ha you have the symptoms of depression. So he did. He went to, to see a doctor. But as it happened so many times, again, with suicide, he never did. The, he never followed the treatment. He got the medication, never took them. So that was, that's one of the signs that back then I saw, but you never, Sherry and Jen, you never think about, about something like that. So no, there has to be a way, right? And it just doesn't cross your mind that someone you love is going to take their lives. And that's why people are so baffled and so much in shock after a suicide, because even when you see the signs, even when you know that, for example, they're struggling with mental illness, which happens quite often. Even when that happens, you don't think that they're going to do it. You just, it's hard to believe because it goes against the most basic of human instinct, right? Which is self-preservation. Right. So, so it was really, really hard for all of us, as you can imagine. And the stigma doesn't help because it's one of the differences with suicide grief is that nobody wants to talk about it. When you die uh, by, let's say, a car accident or cancer, a, a disease or anything, people want to ask questions. <clears throat> they are always around you and they're asking, oh, what happened? And do you need anything? When it's suicide, the moment you say the word, it was suicide, there is silence. Nobody knows what to say, right? And I understand. I mean, I'm sure I, I, would, I would have done the same back then. And this is what... <clears throat> made me, it actually totally changed my life. At the time I worked as a journalist. I, I did that for 20 something years. That just says how old I am, I guess. 
So I did that for 20 something years. And then after my dad died, what happened to me was the way that I, de- I deal with pain. And, and I, can, I can give you some more examples in my family because everybody deals differently. <clears throat> but for me, I always have to understand. I have to have answers. I think this is a natural response, human response. We need to understand. We need to make meaning. And, and what I did was I just started reading compulsively on suicide, which was good on one side because it helped me understand. It really did reading about other, other people who went through the same thing or specialists. I just started buying books on suicide and reading as much as I could. But at the same time, I, I kept reliving. I relived his death. Mm-hmm. So that had a very uh, deep uh, effect, impact on me, on my psychological. And I actually developed depression during that time. And I remember that I, because by the time that happened, I already knew, I mean, I had studied so much about this and I started seeing in myself the symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. So I would be with friends in a bar having fun and this fog would just come on me. And I, I I remember it was hard to breathe that I wanted to cry for for no reason, quote unquote, at all, right? And I started feeling many, many changes, back pain that wouldn't go away. And one day I just said, you know, I need to see a doctor. So I went to see my, my, my doctor, my general practitioner, and I told her, I think I have depression, but let's get hormones and all of the other things out of the way. So we did all the testing and she finally gave me a name for a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed and I, I had, I, I followed the treatment for one year, which was what he told me stop taking medication, never needed it again, but it had a, a profound impact on me and my family. I changed my life. I, I decided that I wanted to do this to help break the stigma, help prevent suicide. So I went to school again. I did my psychoanalysis training for five years and then a master's degree in mental health. And here I am, I work as a, uh, as a therapist now. So it totally, it just shows how much of an impact it has. But it you know, impacted everyone in my family. My sister also developed depression and she still, until today, she takes medication. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a really, really tough grief to go through. It is because you really don't, uh, there's no reason. I mean, you know, if cancer is there, Okay, yeah, you know what an that could yeah. there, yeah. But um, so I, I I do have a, a quick question, and then have a, a bigger question. But when you were going through your um, your depression, did you think that suicide was a way out for you? No, never. No, you didn't. Okay. No, no, I wanted to get well. For sure. Good for you. For sure. I, I immediately said, so no, I'm not. And, and it's, it's a great, great, great that you ask this because my sister, this is one of the ways that it affected her. She had a daughter. Uh, she was, Clara was five at the time, I think, when my dad died. Yeah, she was five at the time. And I, I remember one day she called me crying. And I don't know if she had started the treatment yet or not. But to her, my dad's suicide had in a way a positive impact because she told, I remember she told me, I need to be alive for my, for Clara. Uh And she said, I will not do what he did. 
I will not this. I yeah. can't do this to her. So for her, it was a positive influence on her. And she went again, she went to the doctor and she's been treating, you know, in treatment since then. But for her, you know, and that's what happens. It can happen both ways. Sometimes a family member, it opens, and that's the that's the thing about suicide with the family. Sometimes it opens the door, it becomes an option, something that was never there before. So it can go both ways, but it can be have the 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 opposite effect. So I will never do this because I've been through the grief. So I would never do right. that to anyone. So it depends. But to me, no, it never, I never had suicidal thoughts. But I did get to a point where I remember that I said, I I said to myself, I get it. I get how someone gets to that point. That helps with, I think it helps with empathy because you understand when someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm thinking about suicide, you immediately, you immediately connect. You go, "Mm, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk more. Tell me more. Uh, (laughs) That's the question you have to ask. Don't run away from it because chances are they're very alone. Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, you've written three books on suicide, right? No, one. <laughs> oh, just the one? I have oh. three published books, but only one is on suicide, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Other ones are totally unrelated. One is a romance, so. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah, that's, a, that's awesome. It's fiction, yeah. Uh, in the book that you did write um, mm-hmm. on, on suicide, what was the uh, main what is it you you need your listeners to get or to learn or to feel from that from your book yeah well there's so many messages there but I think one of the main ones is that suicide is about is not about dying most of the time someone who is thinking about suicide they don't want to die they do they want to end unbearable pain So it's about pain. And that's so important to know because the moment that you shift to, okay, this is about pain, let's understand where the pain comes from. And that's actually how you can help. It's by asking questions, by maybe helping them find solutions, by broadening their views, because usually they have a very constricted mind. By the time they get there, that's the only option they see in front of them. So slowly without judgment you talk to them and say okay let's see I have a a a mentor and I'm sure Sherry knows him his name is Edwin Schneidman he's considered the father of suicidology he's I actually had the honor of interviewing him and it was an amazing interview and I think it was one of the last interviews he gave because he died right after that he was 90 years old I interviewed him on the week that he was turning 90 But he says something that I never forgot, and I think it's one of the main messages from my book, too, is that there are only two questions you ask someone who who says something like that. I'm thinking about suicide. One is, where does it hurt? And the second one is, how can I help? Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. And so simple, right? Because our reaction, that's a human reaction, is to fear it. You don't know what to say. And and the thing with suicide is, and I think the stigma 
why the stigma is around and it's so strong and it has become much better i think especially the media we see that the media has been doing has been doing a much better coverage of suicide i think but i think what is related to the stigma is fear mm -hmm. we all fear suicide we fear that it w might happen to someone we love and you fear most of all that it might happen to you it's a scary thought to have isn't it but it's important to see that it's fear that's underneath the stigma. I think it's the main thing. Because you have to, you have to you know, step forward and try to open up that door of the fear and, and, and be aware. And one of the, the other things that I think I talk about in, in this course that I'm putting together now is regarding this fear itself, I mean, look at yourself. Is that, why, why can't you talk about it? Ask yourself the question. And one of the main questions and the main um, messages or re the reality of suicide is that it is an option. It is, we, can't, we have to face that. And that, I think that's one of the main fears we have of suicide because what is the natural reaction to fear? You distract, you get away from it. You avoid fear. But we can't avoid suicide because it's the same thing with death. It is an option and it always will be. And the moment you realize that, you can look it in the eye mm -hmm. and talk about it and, and maybe be less judgmental because it is. You, you don't tell someone who is thinking of, about suicide. You don't say, don't, don't talk about that. That can't be an option for you. Because it is, you know, you, you're starting wrong. That's not the right way to have this conversation. Because the moment you say that, they'll shut up. They will, they will shut down and they will not continue the conversation. So I think these are main messages that we, that I, I try to convey in my book is that, you know, let's look it in the eye. Let's fight the stigma. Let's not be afraid. And it's okay that you are afraid of suicide. Of course you are afraid. Who wants to die? Who wants a loved one to take their lives? No, but by silencing, you're not helping. You're, you're actually giving it space to grow. Because yes. suicidal people, they are afraid of talking about it because they know that the reaction, it can be a reaction of silence. It can be the reaction of judgment of this is wrong and this is right. And again, when you are in pain, that's not gonna help, right? So yeah, I can talk for five hours if you let me. Uh, <laughs> you just go right ahead. I, I appreciate <clears throat> the fact that you are an advocate for suicide awareness and you, you speak about really providing that safe space mm -hmm. um, to have the dialogue. This year got dark for people. Oh my God. So, and people are, and we're still there. We're still in it. And so what do you suggest that people say to each other to open that door and checking in? I think if 2020 taught us anything, it was to check in with each other. So yes. can you speak to that a little bit? Oh my God, this pandemic is such a scary thing, isn't it? Yeah. And at the center, I think, of the pandemic and all the psychological and the mental health issues that we're seeing, and I mean, I'm a therapist, you are too, Sherry, and you know, we are all booked, yeah. right? We all have waiting lists, yeah. is, is what you just said. It's about connection. 
It's about the sense of loneliness. These, are, and I see this in my clients, I'm sure you see it in, in yours. The people who are struggling the most are the ones who don't have a strong support system. They don't have that person who, like you just said, checks in with them. So the main thing for me about the pandemic is connect, try, try, just make an effort, make an effort to connect. I have been in a few lives, especially with Brazil. I talk a lot about this. Check, check in with your elderly. They are the, mo the ones that are most affected in a way because they already were alone. But now even the weekly visits or the monthly visits that they had, they don't have any more and they have difficulties, for example, with technology. So give them a call, you know, the old old fashioned phone, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> do that. But I think it is the main thing is connect because isolation, our bodies and Sherry knows this and she talks about this beautifully. Our bodies, they, the brain identifies isolation and loneliness as danger. Mm -hmm. It does because and you think of our ancestors, what happened to them if they were alone? They would die. Right. They had to live collectively. And we do too. It's in our DNA. It, it comes from our ancestors. So connection is the most important thing right now. Try not to be alone. And it goes both ways because I've also heard people complain. Nobody calls me and said, how many people have you called? Mm. Check in with yourself. Are you doing it yourself? Because every, now we're, everyone now is trying to survive, right? right? This everydayness that we have with COVID. We don't know what, when it's Tuesday or Friday or Saturday. There's no, you know, the, <laughs> we talk about routine and it's important to have routine because that gives you back a little bit of sense of control. But my goodness, we're having too much of it, aren't we? Yes. Nothing bloody changes. <laughs> I, no. Exactly. I, I asked Sherry a question the other day. She was driving home from work and I said, OK, now when you get home, she um, is a professor at, at mm -hmm. a university and she has classes uh, that she teaches at night. And I said, oh, you've got to get home for your class. Well, I was talking to her on Wednesday and that's that's a Monday thing. <laughs> she said, uh, no, <laughs> we don't know anymore. We and lost that's what I told time. Her. I said, I don't sense know. Of time. Exactly. And I, I don't know. I don't know if everything's going too fast or too slow. I don't even know that, right? Exactly. <laughs> Before we had a, we had different points of reference. And so today was, oh my God, went so fast. And then the next day, oh my God, today the day is dragging on. Now we don't know if it's going fast or if it because it's just the sameness. But I, I go back to connection. You know, prioritize that prioritize your yeah. friends, prioritize your family, if you get along with them, of course, and also be selective. Who do you bring into your life right now? That's very important. It's not about numbers. It's about the quality of your connection. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, my, uh, my other daughter, my youngest daughter, uh, when she was a senior in high school, her boyfriend, um, and, you know, those first loves, how important they oh are. Oh, my God, I never forget mine. <laughs> oh, I don't either. And she and he committed suicide. And she uh, she did. And I think still does all these years later deals with guilt about that. Yeah. Oh. 
Um, when I, so I, I want you to kind of speak about that from your mm-hmm. own mm-hmm. Uh, uh, perspective, but also, uh, you know, people, um, friends, I, I have, I attempted suicide twice uh, mm-hmm. and, and I would try to, you know, give the clues. I was just wanting, like you said earlier, I wanted out of the pain. I really didn't want to die, but this was my only way I knew to get away from the pain. Um, But I think, and I think my friends knew I was in trouble, but it was like, what if I cause her to do it? What, what do you say to those people? Mm -hmm. You know, Okay, so we, I am going to divide that in two parts, what to Please. do and what to avoid, right? Because <laughs> these, these two go together. The first thing, I already talked about the fear, right? So check in with yourself, get ready for that conversation. It's not going to be an easy one. But the first thing I always say is put judgment aside, bury judgment if you can. There is no right or wrong. This is not a conversation of you trying to convince them that they are wrong, that they shouldn't do it. It's not about that. Again, it's about understanding where they are in their pain. What is the source of the pain? So the first thing to say is, tell me more, something very simple. Wow, I'm validate what they're feeling. Because, and, and, and you tell me, Jen, if that's true, but as su- someone who is contemplating suicide, they have a lot of fear that they will not be understood, right? Absolutely. They, it's really hard to talk. You, as you said, I'm giving the clues, but I'm not. I'm not sure if they are. But you are afraid of judgment too. Oh so yes. The, yeah. The first thing to do is put aside judgment. Ask them how they're feeling. Ask them to just talk, tell me what's happening in your life. What is taking you to this place? So let them talk. The first thing to do is let them talk exhaustively. Let them talk, talk talk about their fears, what's happening, because it can be circumstantial. It can be related to mental illness. It can be, but even mental illness, we used to talk about 90%. I'm sure Jen remembers this. uh, uh, Sherry remembers this number. 90% of suicides are related to mental illness. Not anymore. It's not. This number is dead. The latest numbers we have, for example, for the U.S., is that 54% of suicide are not related to mental illness anymore. It's personal crisis. So it's something that's happening to that person. So ask the questions. Don't be afraid. Let them talk because they are so alone in their pain. They're trying to talk to someone, but they're afraid. They're afraid of judgment. They're afraid that they're going to hospitalize them because that's one, the thing that comes to mind, right? And that's a scary thing because we know that hospitalization can re-traumatize. That's like a last resort, but talk to them. Try to amplify connection. Again, we go back to connection. Mm -hmm. So with consent, and that's very important, especially if you're going to bring in family members, because sometimes that's where the crisis comes from, right? Mm -hmm. So try to understand where the crisis comes from. Try to open up their perspective, broaden their perspective on, on what's happening. Bring in hope. That's very important. Try to talk to them, for example, of reasons of living. Bring up some joy. 
pay attention to their to their facial expression and talk about other things in their lives until you find that little tiny smile when they talk about a child, for example, their kid, or an activity that they love doing. That's a reason for living. You know, memorize that. That's something that you can talk about and and try to get them you know, out of that space of pain and darkness and in the constriction that they have, that this is the only way out. So the main thing to do is to listen to them, to see where the pain comes from and see how you can help. You broaden their um, perspectives and try to show them other options that are around, uh, strengthen their connections, bring in some more support. And of course, clinical support if possible, if they can see a mental health professional that helps. If you think it's a mental illness, then a doctor for sure. Or here you have a practitioner, right? Nurse practitioner. We don't have that in Brazil. It has to be a psychiatrist in Brazil. But here, yeah, take them to a doctor. But here's the thing. Don't ask them to go. Be proactive. Take them to the doctor. I did that to a friend of mine. I actually had them Thankfully, I knew I had already published my book, but I had one day a, a phone call from a friend. That I immediately I, I identified that she was calling to say goodbye because that's one of the signs of suicide, right? Immediately. So I let her talk. She was talking about the past because that's what they do. They start you know, remembering good times. They become very nostalgic. That's one of the warning signs. And when she finished, I... I did what we were supposed to do. Don't be afraid to use the word, ask directly. I said, are you thinking about suicide? And she just started crying and crying and crying. And I said, listen, cry as much as you you want. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to listen to you. So I started asking her all the questions that I knew could help. And at the end, the other thing that I usually say is try to verbally talk to them and just ask for some time. We used to do something in the past too, Sherry, you remember this. We used to do contracts and it was actually a paper that they signed. We know that now that doesn't help anymore because they they do that just to make you feel better. It doesn't really mean a thing to them. And sometimes it can can give them a kind of a a bad feeling about this because especially if if you are a therapist, they may think that you're trying to cover yourself, not me. It's not about me here. So don't do the contract thing, but you can ask for time. Listen, do you think you can hold on to that idea for a while? And that's what I did. I said, can you give me one month? That's all I ask. It's your life, but give me a month. Let's try something together. And I took her to the doctor. She's still alive. This was like 10 years ago. So that's what you do. You hold their hands. Don't leave them alone because they already are very, very alone. So connection, don't judge, don't say right and wrong, shouldn't do, the, forget the shoulds and shouldn't, shouldn't do this or, or guilt, guilt. You talked about guilt, right? You started talking about that. Don't guilt trip them. Don't talk about their kids that they're going to suffer if they do that. They know, they know. And that's probably why they're still alive. But if you shame them, they're just going to shut down. So forget shaming, forget guilt tripping them, forget right and wrong and shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. You are there to help. So give them their hands, hold their hands and help them through it together. Don't leave them alone. 
Thank you. Thank you for that. You've mentioned a couple of warning signs and I want to, I want to cover a few more, you know, you, you mentioned somebody calling and, you know, getting real nostalgic and, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of assuming this language of goodbye. Um, Your own father, um, you know, started having you take over finances and that was a, a warning sign. What, what are some of the other ones? You know, Sherry, my dad, now looking back, he was textbook warning signs. He gave them all, all of them. I, you tick, you just go tick, tick, tick. I'll give you some. Well, first of all, you have the verbal warning signs and non-verbal. So the verbal warning signs is when they start talking about death, they start saying things like, it doesn't mean, a, it, I, don't, I don't see the point of living. They won't say, I want to die, or they might not say that, or or they might, but they might not even be so straightforward. But they'll say things like, I don't see the point of living. I wish I never woke up. I I wish tomorrow I didn't wake up. So that's like a passive thought of suicide. But pay attention to what they say in the verbal signs, because they might say differently, teenagers especially. But the nonverbal ones... Think first of depression. When we read about symptoms of depression, many of them can be a symptom of of a warning sign for suicide. So uh, extreme isolation, withdrawal from friends, when they stop doing the things that they used to love doing, so they stop those activities, they kind of lose passion for things. They start not taking care of their appearance anymore. So they stop showering. And, you know, women, we don't go to hairdressers anymore. We don't paint our nails. So that's that's another warning sign too. Sadness, anger, mood swings. Mood swings is a strong one. Those are signs that if you read depression symptoms can be related to depression. So that might be a mental illness and related to that. But there are some warning signs that are like red flags. And those, and why are they red flags? Because we know that it's past thoughts and it's past ideation. When you think about suicide, think of a continuum. So the beginning is the thoughts. Thoughts of suicide, many people have those. It's quite common, actually. Passive or active or whatever, but it can cross your mind. But it, these are thoughts. And then you progress into ideation. This is something that's always there. It's, a, it's an open door that you never close, right? So, And some people live w- with suicide ideation all their lives. So it's uh, ideation, and then comes intent. After, So do they want to die? Are, are they really thinking about an attempt. Then they progress to planning, attempt, and completion. So it's a continuum. Suicide is a continuum. And when I say pay attention to the red flags, it means that they have stepped at least up to intention and planning. They are really thinking about suicide. So some of them, and I'll give you the example of my father, because as I said before, he just ticked all of them. Saying goodbye, He did that. He called many friends. And I only found out, of course, when I was writing the book, because I interviewed many people. But he did say goodbye to my sister. I was here in the U.S. on vacation when he died. I was coming back that week. But he went to my sister's house the day before. And he wouldn't leave. He just stayed and stayed like all afternoon until night and my sister she said that she sensed that there was something wrong sometimes he would start choking when he was talking and she said well there's something what is going on there's something and he wouldn't leave so he went there to say goodbye clearly 
So he gave that sign. And she actually called me the night when he left. She called me. She was crying. And uh, she said, Paula, I think he's he's thinking, I don't know what the word, but she didn't she didn't use the word suicide. But I think she said something like, I think he's he's going to do something stupid, or he's thinking of there's something wrong with dad. And, and I said, Don't worry about it, because I'm coming back this week. I'll sit down and talk to him. But I didn't have time because he killed himself the next day in the morning. I woke up with the, another phone call. So that sign he gave. The other sign he gave was being nostalgic. So Renata, my sister, she told me that he actually actually asked him. He always picked me up at the airport. For some reason, my dad loved to do that. We never understood, but he always picked us up at the airport. And she would ask him, Dad, are you picking her up? Paul is coming back on Thursday. Are you picking her up? And he would change the subject. He would go back to the past and he would say, Oh, I remember the trip I did with Paula to blah, blah, blah. And he would start talking about the past. So that's what they do because they know there is no future. If you talk about the future and plans, they'll go back to the past. They'll become very nostalgic because they want to, to die remembering good times. So they will call and go call friends and, and talk about parties that they went to. So saying good, goodbye is a, is a warning sign, a red, red flag one. Being nostalgic and only talking about the past is another one. Getting your affairs in order, financial situation, debts, all of that. You sell your house, you do. You just get all these things out of the way because you know it will be complicated for your family to do that. But this, it just shows how planning, how, how much in, into planning they are. My dad did that too. I told you in the beginning the story about opening a, the, the account with me. That was part of the planning. Now I see that very clearly. So they, he paid, you know, he made sure he didn't have any debts and all the money he had left, which wasn't much. It was, he put it in the bank account that I could, I could take care of because it was a joint account. So that's how far I mean, he planned for, for months. We know now. So that's another one, getting affairs in order. And the other one, the last one that I mentioned, no, two more that I, I remember now. One is giving, giving away possessions, even the ones that have some kind of, uh, you know, memory attached or sentimental value. They start giving, up, giving away everything because they know they don't need anything anymore. So that's another, if you see someone that loves their guitar, giving their guitar away, I mean, stop and talk to them because that's another one. And the last one just escaped my mind. Um, can't remember. <laughs> just went away. It will come back. If come back, it comes back. But these are warning signs that really, really need attention because it shows that they are planning. They already know where when and how wow i've also seen yeah. clients in the past um have a shift in mood that's pretty depressing. oh yes that's so it they actually yeah. get, um look happy i mean they're giving away their things and they're happy and, and that's the trickiest one it is tricky um but but sometimes that signals uh i have a plan i know what i'm going to do and i feel at peace with it yes yes i'm so glad you reminded me that's the last one that i always talk about and we hear this i don't understand they were doing much better she was doing much better she had improved 
but it's it's actually not it's not improvement it's just the peace of mind before they had a conflict now they don't have the conflict anymore they have made a decision and that's why they're at peace so and that's a tricky one because how how on earth can you know right but but that's why it's so important that we talk about this because it's someone who is listening now who are, they may go wow that's what's happening maybe i should stop and talk to them and check in yeah i love i love that you mentioned those and i you know, I, I can hear the minds of our listeners right now um, saying, well, what do I do with that? If they're if they're happy, what do I even ask about? And I, I think what I would caution people or challenge people to do is a, an emotional check in with with everyone in your life. Hey, emotional check in. Where are you at? We're still in this pandemic. Tell me where you're at. I have a friend that. Um, will drill down with me when I give her the pat answer. When I say to her, oh, I'm fine, she'll say, that's <laughs> not good enough for me. I want to understand what fine means. And yeah. and I so appreciate that, um, having someone in my life that can really sort of push me to go deeper and not settle yeah. for that fine yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, not so, one that I hear all the time, <clears throat> not too bad. What does that even mean? Is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Right. right <laughs> we don't have that. We don't have that answer in Portuguese. So for me, it's like I, that doesn't mean a thing to me. Can we just elaborate a little more? But it, it's like you can ask very simple questions, right, Cherry? It, it just I, I usually ask, what are the challenges for you? What is the hardest thing for you with this pandemic? It's, because for, we, we just assume we know. Oh, maybe it's because they don't talk to people. No, sometimes it's because I can't walk my dog anymore. Mm -hmm. Or simple things. I can't go have a conversation with this person that I used to see every day. And we used to talk every day because that's where I used to get my coffee. It's different things for different people. It's because I can't do my Zumba class. I know that's hard for me. Now I used to love doing my Zumba class. Can't do that in not with people. And it's not the same with in front of a TV. I do it. It's not the same. But you know, just just talk. Just ask what are the challenges. But now what I do too, Sherry, and I think it because the pandemic, of course, is a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. And I don't want to minimize that. But I think it has had some silver linings too. We deaccelerated. We now know we don't need that much of a hush, uh, rushed life and crazy doing 100 things. A lot of people are here now saying, you know, my life is simple now. I don't know if I'm going back to that life. So it made us reflect on the life we had too. So I, I ask things, of, so what has it changed for the best? Yeah. What what has improved in your life with with all this, you know, thinking that we're doing now and then reflecting and, and as I said before, you know, the friendships changed, I think for most of us, right? We're more selective. We lost, I mean, who hasn't lost a friend during the pandemic? I did because some people just disappeared from your life and, and I tried, I, I kept checking in and at some point you just go, you know what, do I want this person in my life? I don't think so. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So but but check in like that. Ask the challenges. What what would make it you know better for you? What helps? We now know what helps. In the beginning, the first few months, we didn't know. We were kind of walking around lost. We didn't know. Now we do. And what helps you when you're in, you know, in a dark place or motivation? That's the thing that we hear every day. I have no motivation to do anything. Yeah. So what gets you out of there? 
So ask questions, just investigate, right? Right. If we came at our relationships from an inquisitive lens, and and really curiosity be curiosity um Mm -hmm. i i just wonder how much um how richer they would be you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i did this with all my clients at the end you know in december the last session with all of them i just did a recap of the year okay let's talk about this year it's been tough yeah it's been horrible yeah but what are the good things that happened in your life too during this pandemic? New people that you found. I had someone, a friend of mine say, you know, I had friends that I hadn't seen and talked for decades. And now we have this Zoom meeting every two weeks or so. And I, I just, I have new friendships in my life. So it, it wasn't all bad. So like, let's look at good things too. Well said. Totally agree. Tell, tell our listeners how they get your book, how they find out about your podcast, your YouTube channel. You're wonderful. Yeah. I'd like them to hear more from you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your words. Um, well, my podcast is called Understand Suicide. So if you type that on wh- wherever you listen to your podcast, Understand Suicide. And also through my website. My website is the same, understandsuicide.com. So there you have a lot of resources. I talk about books that are good to read. I talk about grief. I talk about risk factors, warning signs. They're all there. And you have a lot of resources for teachers, for parents. And I talk a lot about grief and what to say, what to avoid. So if you want more resources, go to my website and all the videos, because my podcast, I have the videos too. So you can watch. Because some people, I think it's it's very, very nice to, to watch. I like to watch podcasts if I can, because I, I want to see that person talk, right? So that's why I started recording mine too. So if you go to YouTube and you type understand suicide, you're going to find all the videos of the podcasts too. And the book is on Amazon. So just type my name and you find it. Paula Fontanelli, you have been a fantastic guest. I appreciate you. you going there on a topic that's still very difficult for people to discuss. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I appreciate you for having the courage to open this door. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Oh, I want to thank you too. Your your voice and your kindness are just a bomb. They're just <laughs> a bomb. Uh, uh, I just I, I just adore you so much. Uh, and I thank adore you. your accent, Jen. I <laughs> love you. that accent. It just takes me back to my Dallas friends that I love so much. Uh, thank you so much. Um, okay, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Mental Health News Radio Network. And you can find us at the traumaspeakers.com where you can check out our books, uh, check out uh, events. And until next time, remember, which way is a choice you get to decide. Thank you for joining us on whichwaypodcast.com. Look us up on sherrysimmons.com for a list of our coaching packages and speaking engagements. And as always, feel free to email us at sherrysimmonsspeaks at gmail.com. That's S-H-A-R-I-S-I-M-M-O-N-S-P-E-A-K-S 
at gmail.com. And a special thank you to Mental Health News Radio Network, where you can find this and many other inspiring talks.